So he's a very busy man. Um, but out of his busyness, he agreed to study the Word of God and preach this morning. So thank you. All right. Well, as we move into Romans chapter 4, where we will be this week, and I understand a couple weeks from now as well, and I'm not sure how long beyond that, you're going to hear a lot about a guy named Abraham. This whole chapter of Romans 4 is about Abraham, and to the Jewish audience that Paul is writing this, it's the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the Romans, um, but many of the people he was writing to were in fact, most of them were in fact uh, Jewish by birth and by lineage, and uh, either by faith or previously by faith. And to the Jewish audience that Paul is writing this, Abraham is a big deal. Abraham, to the Jewish people, is a hero, a champion, a founding father, and frankly, a grandfather. To bring up Abraham's name in a conversation would instantly elicit to the Jewish people at the time all sorts of emotions. You would instantly have feelings of loyalty. You'd instantly have feelings of, of this is important and you better not mess with that. The closest thing I can come up to in our modern setting just happens to be during this election season. If you're in a crowd of people and you bring up the name Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you're going to stir up all kinds of emotions. And in fact, uh, in an event, something that happened about 50 years or 60 years before this uh, letter to the Romans was written, is recorded in John chapter 8. The Jewish people were ready to beat Jesus to death, to stone him over an argument about Abraham. Abraham's a big deal. You better not mess with Abraham. And yet, that is exactly what Paul is going to do in Romans chapter 4. He's going to mess with their understanding of Abraham. And you better believe the people are going to stand up and notice this. But to us today, now nearly 2,000 years later and almost 4,000 years after the time of Abraham, how can we really understand this context of this passage? And they have all of this emotion tied into Abraham. How do we today understand him? So if we're going to talk about Abraham today and in weeks to come, we need to dig into his life a little bit. We need to talk about Abraham and his amazing, earth-shattering discovery before we dip our toes into this deep pool of Romans chapter 4. That's what we're going to do this morning, talk a lot about Abraham. Before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Our God and Father, you know, I give you thanks for this opportunity to share the word with the church this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for how very much this church, this body, these people have meant to me and to my family. And I thank you, Father, that you've been working in my life 
about the very concepts I get a chance to preach on this morning. You know, uh, Pastor Jason had no idea that he was touching on such a tender spot on my heart when he asked me to preach in Romans 4. Father God, I thank you that you providentially orchestrate our lives, that you're working in every one of our lives. I pray, Lord, today that even though my heart is going to get opened up a bit here, I pray, Lord, that it's your heart for the people here. I pray, Lord, that it's your words that stick with us, that walk with us out of this place, and it's your heart that truly touches us this morning. Open up the word to us, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen. So very quickly, a little show of hands. How many of you have seen or are at least familiar with the game show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Good, bunch of you, bunch of you are at least familiar with it, the idea that the host of the game show asks the contestants a question that a, a fifth grader might be studying, and then they find out if this adult is in fact smarter than a fifth grader. So we're going to play a little game of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader here uh, this morning. I have a couple of questions for you that might come at a fifth grader, and we'll see how you respond to them. Question number one. Yes, this is audience participation. Anyone may answer. <clears throat> if I were to ask a fifth grader, who discovered America, what do you suppose most folks would say? Christopher Columbus. Very good. You have passed question number one. Excellent. Very good. Now, if we got a little bit further into our study of American history, we would probably have to acknowledge that Christopher Columbus didn't actually discover America. That Native Americans and folks before that uh, actually lived in what we call America today in this land long before Christopher Columbus came over. But Western civilization as we know it and as we live in it today was brought to these shores by the Western civilization guy who discovered America, Christopher Columbus. Next question. If I were to ask a group of fifth graders, who is the father of our nation, the father of our country, what do you suppose most would say? Of America, it would be, what was that I heard over here? George Washington, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, you're fine. You're actually getting ahead of me in the message, Deb, so hang on. Yes, referring to America, uh, the father of our country is often referred to as George Washington. He was that leader who was there and was part of the, the um, Constitutional Congress and so forth, that first president. When our country got the laws and the systems that we're most familiar with and still live with today, he's called the father of our country, George Washington. All right, congratulations, congregation. You have effectively passed. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Very good. Yes. That's all of those, those founders and so forth for this land that we call America. I want to introduce you to another land, or what I call land. I'm going to call it the land of faith. Now, the Bible often refers to this as the kingdom of God, but for today's purposes, I'm going to call it the land of faith. And it is that blessed place where the people therein walk with God in right standing with God. They talk with God. Participate with God in amazing things that he's doing. It is a blessed place. And the scriptures tell us that we do not have to wait until we die to enter this land of faith. 
but that we can walk with God and talk with God, be in right standing with God, know that when we turn to him, he hears, he answers this land of faith. And interestingly enough, it's something, this land of faith, that only the people of the Jewish and the Christian faiths profess is real. And Abraham plays a significant part in this land of faith because as we'll see in a minute, Abraham discovered it. Abraham is, to draw the parallel to us today, the Christopher Columbus of the land of faith. Now, to draw my analogy, just like there technically were some people in America before Christopher Columbus, there technically were some people in the land of faith before Abraham came along, Noah specifically, and others. And in the land of faith, as the Jews understood it, the culture that they were familiar with, the system of laws and society was instituted not by Abraham, but by this guy named Moses. He's like the George Washington. So Abraham is our Christopher Columbus in this land of faith. But what I want you to understand is that to the Jews, he was so much more. Because to the Jewish people, he was their actual physical ancestor. It would be like if Christopher Columbus came over to America, settled here, stayed here, and gave birth to all of us. And we were all descendants of Christopher Columbus. That didn't actually happen. But... It would be like that. To the Jewish people, all of those who, are, who are, are by lineage Jewish can trace their ancestry back to Abraham himself. In fact, the Bible calls the Jews by different names. Sometimes they're called Israelites. Well, that's after Israel, Abraham's grandson. Or sometimes they're referred to as Jews or Jewish, which is named after Judah, Abraham's great-grandson. They all come from Abraham. So you're talking about the Jews. It's their Christopher Columbus, and it's their grandfather. We're going to take just a minute to look at Abraham's life, further dive into why he's so significant. His story is in, recorded in Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 25. No, I'm not preaching on all that this morning, or it would be this afternoon and this evening. Uh, but I will recap four quick stories because you need to understand that Abraham's life is filled with stories of great faith and also of great failure. In Genesis chapter 12, we get one of our first stories of Abraham. God calls on Abraham to leave the land of his fathers and go to the place I will show you. Now, this is, this is noteworthy. Because he didn't say, leave the land of your fathers and go to this other place I'm going to describe to you, I'm going to tell to you, I'm going to name to you. No, it was a matter of saying, okay, I, you grew up here in Iowa and all your families around you, you all got farms, that's great. You're going to get up and you're going to leave, get on the highway, and when you get there, I'll let you know. It wasn't like, you know, go to Illinois because the land is better or something. No, because it's not. No, but I mean, but <laughs> it was... Get up and go where I'll show you. And when you get there, I'll let you know. A tremendous act of faith because Abraham said okay and did it. And this is one of the great hero stories of Abraham. However, same chapter, 
Genesis 12. Abraham goes to this new land where there's all kinds of new kings, and he has a problem. His wife is a major league hottie. And the problem is, everywhere he goes, the powerful men of the land and the kings are going to want his wife. And he gets scared for his own life because if they find out that she is his husband, they're going to kill him and take her. So he comes up with this horrible plan. He says to his wife, Sarah, he says, when we get to these new lands with these new kings, here's what I want you to do. You tell them I'm your brother. And that way, instead of killing me, they'll reward me and honor me and then take you for their wife. See, Abraham's got these great stories about how he trusted God. This was one area where he did not. And this isn't the only time he did this. We have at least two stories recorded in Scripture of him doing this with different kings. This was not a shining moment for Abraham. And we have some great stuff to talk about him in stories number three and four, but the second story of him doing this with Sarah again, with him frankly, I mean really, prostituting out his own wife for his own financial gain? Yeah, he, he kept stumbling that area. Before you think of Abraham as some great, heroic, noble person I could never be like, understand this guy had his faults and flaws, big time. But three chapters later in Genesis 15, we get a really critical story about Abraham. I would argue it leads us to what might be the most significant verse in all the Bible. Abraham's about 85 years old. His wife is roughly 75. And you do need to understand, this is a long, long time ago, not far removed from Adam, when the gene pool was still pretty clean and people lived a long time. Abraham lived to 175. His wife lived to 127. He's 85 and 75, but they do not have any children, despite having been married for decades and trying to have children for decades. And Sarah is approaching that point in her life where she would be physically unable to have children any longer. At that time, about 75. God takes Abraham outside at night. He shows him all the stars. And he says, Abraham, you will have more descendants than all those stars you can see. Despite the fact they've been trying to have children unsuccessfully for decades. Despite the fact they had none and Sarah was approaching the time when she would not be able to have any. But Abraham believed him. And then comes this verse. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Really significant verse filled with lots of big words. So let's begin righteousness. As Gus explained last week, righteousness is this state of being right with God. And scriptures tell us in several places that including what Gus preached on Genesis or in uh, Romans chapter 3 that none of us can get there on our own this place of being right with God. No amount of good deeds can make it happen. For see, God is holy and perfect, and every one of us 
is sinners. And this great gulf exists between the two. And no matter how hard we try to get there, we keep falling into this grand canyon between us. Only God can cross that bridge and make us right with him again. And this verse says, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. I'm going to get more into that in just a minute because it plays in big time in Romans 4. Put a bookmark right there. One more story. Later on in his life, Abraham. Uh, it took several more years for Sarah to have that promised child. She was about 90. Even back then, that was old for having babies. She was 90 when she had that promised child through whom all the descendants would come. Later on in his life, Abraham, after she died, would marry another woman and have other children. But it was this one child, a child named Isaac, through whom this blessing and all of these descendants, like stars in the sky, were supposed to come through this one Isaac. And God tells Abraham, take Isaac, he's born now, take Isaac up this mountain and kill him. And Abraham grabs a stack of wood and a knife and takes his son up that mountain. Builds the wood to be an altar to burn the body, puts his son on top of the altar, raises the knife, and he's about to kill him, and God says, stop. Abraham, it's not going to be your son who is killed for the sins of the world. It's going to be mine. Your son will live. Mine will die. And that came later in Jesus Christ. Abraham has some incredible stories of faith. You can see why the people, the Jewish people, felt so strongly in admiration for this man. But why do I say that Abraham discovered the land of faith? He's the first one He's not the first one to have faith. He's not even the first one the Bible calls righteous. But he's the first one to step into this land where God just gives people righteousness. God only gives that righteousness to people who have faith. But it's still a gift. Why does God do it that way? I've got my theory on that, but that's another sermon for another time. I want to show you what I mean about this discovery now. And what all these big Christian words like righteousness and credited and so forth mean. Let's look into Romans chapter 4 right now. What, shall, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, as I described, discovered in this matter? I chose the NIV this morning because it says discovered. Like Christopher Columbus, what did Abraham discover? This is what he discovered. And then in the second verse, Paul asks this sort of rhetorical question. He says, if, if in fact, what Abraham discovered was that he was justified by works, let's stop there. Right there. This is a rhetorical question Paul is asking. It's like, if what Abraham discovered was that he's justified, he's made right with God because of his works, and that right there is a really, really common belief. 
even among people who have been Christians for years, that our righteousness, our right standing before God, our ability to talk with Him and walk with Him and be with Him is dependent upon the good things that we do. That's really common belief. And I know that I, I grew up believing that for every penny of everything I was worth. I happened to grow up in a Catholic church, but it does not matter if you're Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist or Hindu or Muslim. This pervasive idea that God likes me when I'm good and turns his back on me when I'm bad is an idea that pervades the heart, if not the mind, but the heart of many of us. I remember I used to work when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I used to work at my dad's store in McGregor, Iowa, northeast corner of Iowa. He ran the store that sold ceramic supplies, the clay and the paints and the brushes and the kilns and the molds and everything. Wigs for dolls, the whole deal. And I used to work for him. Like a kid growing up on a farm does every chore on the farm. I did every chore in the store. By the time I was a middle-aged teenager, 14, 15, I was so sick of it. And I remember one day specifically... There was a big storehouse down in the basement of my dad's store. There was work to be done down there. I went down to the basement, and I spent the entire day doing nothing. I was um, punched in on the clock, being paid hourly by my dad's own business, doing nothing, goofing off, making trouble. And nobody came down to the basement ever, so no accountability. I remember at the end of that day, I came upstairs, a whole day of swindling my dad out of my paycheck, having to go to the bathroom. And I remember being in the bathroom, and I remember looking in the mirror and just thinking, yeah, this was not a shining moment for me. And thinking to myself, I need to ask God to forgive me. And also thinking to myself, I can't do that. God's not going to forgive. Look what I've been doing all day. Stealing from my dad's own business. I remember thinking, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow I'll work twice as hard and make up for it, and then I can ask God for forgiveness. Maybe then he would hear me. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Either thinking you have to be good to get God to listen to you. Or thinking you're such a screw-up that he never would. Yet that whole way of thinking is based on a premise, one premise, right here in verse 2. If, in fact, we are justified, that means made right before God can talk with God, can hear from God, can walk with God, if we are made right with God by our works, then that would be true. But, it says, 
yeah, maybe Abraham would have something to boast about, but not before God. Because that's not how it works. We learned in Romans chapter 3 last week that we have all fallen short of God, of pleasing God by our works. There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Or in Isaiah 53, 6, we have all gone astray. Or in Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We do not get to boast before God and say, look, I did good today, now you love me. It does not work like that. And conversely, it doesn't work like the opposite. I did bad today, so you won't love me. It does not work like that. In fact, in this Romans 4 here, Paul says this rhetorical question, if it worked like that, not before God, he says in verse 3, what does the Bible actually say? What do the scriptures actually say? And guess which verse he goes to. He quotes word for word Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's break that down. As righteousness, that means he was made right with God. Means Abraham... Got it. He received it. He found this, this land of faith. This place where I'm right with God and I don't have to be ashamed when I'm in his presence and I don't have to try to earn to get into his presence. Righteousness. He got it. So what did he have to do to get this? It says Abraham <coughs> believed God. Wait, that's it? I mean, he didn't have to sacrifice something. He didn't have to do good works. He didn't have to make sure that his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds. He just believed? Yes! That is exactly what the Bible says. It taught it back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15. It taught, teaches it here in Romans. There's another famous passage in Ephesians. Where it says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace we are saved through faith, not works. But I don't want you to miss, there's one really important word that I skipped over. This word right in the middle. It was credited to him as righteousness. Some of your uh, Bibles might use the word reckoned. Credited, reckoned, it sounds like a bank. It is like a bank. In this case, the bank is God. God just gave it to him. It does not say it was deposited as righteousness. It did not say it was, it was well, earned. It does not say it was a paycheck. It was Credited, like, like a refundable tax credit. We have this thing in the United States where, where you can get tax credits and the government gives you money even if you didn't work. 
if your taxes work just right, like mine do because of all my dependents, <laughs> come tax time, the government says you have all these kids, you get money. I get money instead of paying money. It's a credit, and that's the word the scriptures use here. It's a credit, it's a gift. And this is Abraham's incredible great discovery. His great discovery is that you enter the land of faith not by being good, but because God just credits it. God just gives it like a tax credit to those who believe. This is mind-blowing. In fact, the next two verses go on to explain exactly what I've been saying. Let's look at these quick. Verses 4 and 5. It says, Now when a man works, his wages, his paycheck, are not credited to him as a gift. They're an obligation. If I worked for an employer, the employer owes me money. And that's not how this works. We do not work for God, and God owes us favors. No. God gives it. It's a credit. Verse 5 continues the same idea. However, to the man who does not work. Now, we certainly can. In fact, we are designed by God to do good works. But even for the man who does nothing. But who trusts in God, who justifies even the wicked people. Even that teenage boy who just spent a day stealing money from his dad. Faith is credited, given as righteousness. I quoted earlier Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and again, I glossed over the most important word in the verse. For it is by grace. The word grace means a gift. Undeserved gift, specifically. It is by grace that you are saved. Yeah, it's through faith, but it's not by works. Lest you should think you could boast. Which, of course, was brought up here in Romans again. It's a gift. And that's why Paul continues saying we are truly blessed. Because as he showed us in the last chapter in Romans 3, and as the Bible explained in Isaiah, those other passages, we don't get to earn. We can't earn, no matter how hard we try. Entry into the land of faith. Into God's presence. Into God's favor. We can't do it. But for all those who believe in him through his son, Jesus Christ, God just gives it. We mess up, and God gives us his favor, gives us right standing, gives us the land of faith. We fall short, and God just gives it to us. We're ashamed of what we did, and God still wants to walk with us. We hang our head but he is the lifter of our head. 
No more striving to be good enough. No more hiding in the bathroom because we're bad enough. God says, my grace is enough. Now come and walk with me. Come and talk with me. I'm not disappointed in you. I've forgiven you. And righteousness, put in the modern vernacular, we're good, you and me. It's all good. So what you walking around moping for? What you walking around trying to earn my, we're good. That's, again, why Paul, he turns, he quotes David now. David is the guy, the king, who wrote all those psalms in the middle of the Bible. Wrote these songs, and he quotes Psalm 32. So David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He sings this song, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That state of blessedness is living in the land of faith. And we enter the land of faith, not by works, but by the gift, by the grace of God. Let's pray. God, I, I'm going to confess that, that I struggle at times to really make this, believe this. This idea that we're all good. Not that all people are good, of course, but that between you and me, God, there's nothing between us. That my sin is not a stain between us. That you smile on me in favor and love and forgiveness, and you don't count my sins against me. David sang about it. Paul wrote about it. Abraham discovered it. God, I don't confess to you I need to discover it anew. Father, would you take me and would you take all the people here and help us to walk fresh steps anew into new undiscovered territories, the land of faith. Pour out your love and grace upon us, Lord. Stir in our hearts the faith through Jesus Christ is credited to us as righteousness.